Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. morning, everybody. Uh, welcome back more and more to our college students who are back. We're so happy that you are back with us, that we can worship God together. Um, we are in our final part of the missives, and this final part is about Christ's bride. I encourage you, if you haven't listened to the first two, listen to it online. Uh, we have it and in our website. And um, one of the, the, the comments that I heard was, oh, after, after last week's sermon, there, people would say, I thought it was like a uh, seven-part series that you would do after this. This is just the beginning. And I would agree with that person. It is just the beginning. And this is what we want to do. We want to lay a, a foundation in Scripture, in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, so that we can continue to grow. And so before we do that, uh, let's start with a prayer. Our God and Father, we ask you, imploring you, since all fullness of wisdom and light is found in you, to mercifully enlighten us by your Holy Spirit in the true understanding of your word, and to give us grace to receive it in true fear and humility. May we be taught by your word to place our trust only in you and to serve and honor you as we should, so that we may glorify your holy name in all our living and edify our neighbor by good example, rendering to God the love and obedience which faithful servants owe their masters and children their parents, since it has pleased you to graciously receive us among the number of your servants and children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I start every talk, I, I do recommend a book. So this is the book for today. And uh, could we get that first picture up there? This is, uh, for me, it was a pretty transformative book. And I recommend every, um, every single person, if you want to, and if you have the time, to please do read this book. I made it one of the required readings for all of our eligible deacons to come. It's by uh, a pastor named Mark Dever in D.C. You can see the Ford by David Platt. He's the man, too. Um, so um, this is what I would recommend before I uh, begin today's talk. Thank you for putting that up there. If you want any other information, we do have some uh, literature on my left, your right. So we have, uh, like the, I think, the book from last week, but also there's a new book, like What is the Church? Also, so you could pick that up. And like I said, don't be shy. Pick up as many as you want, as many as you can read, as many as you want to give out. And if we run out, we'll just get some more. I had a lot of talks after last week's sermon with uh, a few people, uh, quite a number of people. And especially the missionary that was here, the two missionaries that were here, Pastor Rick and Gigi, they both separately came to me 
to, to share, not just the appreciation for the sermon, but to share how like something simple as the difference between a man and a woman, it's so basic in the Bible and yet so difficult to preach and to teach in a place like the Philippines. And so we prayed for them and we're praying that they continue to do the good work God has given them to do in uh, the island of Cebu. And, but some other people have come up to me and asked me, hey, how come you don't, or we don't, you don't specifically say certain things, like some trigger uh, words, and like you don't specifically mention things like abortion or premarital sex or, or feminism or patriarchy. Aren't these things bad? How come you don't specifically mention that? And uh, I, I thought that was a good question. How come I don't specifically call out certain ideologies? And I think it's not because I'm afraid to call them out. If you talk to me one-on-one, I, I kind of lay out the dangers of all these things. But historically, what I want to do, especially in this pulpit, is to say these are the basics. This is what's good. And if you, if you don't see what is good, how can we start talking about, you know, political ideals and things of that nature when we're not even set on the foundation of what is truth. So historically, Christians have done this. They would say, we believe that this is good. We saw this in scripture, and we believe that this is good. And because of that, we believe that this is bad too. And this is what you would see if you study theology. Um, there's, there's like a, a collection of teachings called the Didache, which just means teachings from the very beginning. It's not biblical, it's extra biblical. But this is what Christians have done. They would say, this is good, we see this in the Bible, and so therefore, this can't be good. Does that make sense? So this is what they have taught. So what is good then is universal, it's not just good for a time, but it's good for all time. And this is what we want to preach and proclaim. What is good and what is beautiful? What can we as Christians get excited about? And there are beautiful things that we see that has been fulfilled in Christ, but there are also things that have not yet been fulfilled. We know that it has not yet been fulfilled because we are still called to act a certain way, do a certain thing until the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's any day now. I can't wait. But the day and hour isn't for us to know. But we eagerly, as Christians, we eagerly await him. This is also why we go back to the scriptures and from the beginning try to figure out what it means. What is its purpose? So when I would argue or debate about any, uh, about to, with someone about anything, that if this person is not in the faith or maybe this person kind of, um, kind of you know, changed just a tiny bit from the traditional faith, uh, this is what I kind of talk about. What, on what basis are we debating? Or on what basis are we having this discussion? Ultimately, even if you aren't Christian, ultimately, aren't we talking about meaning? Fundamentally, why are we here? And where are we going? Where do we need to go? This is why there's a lot of ideologies we learn in school and a lot of you have come back from school, and then what, what happens is you learn this thing in school, you come back here, and it just doesn't add up. It doesn't add up right. 
And so we're, 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 we're thinking, what do I do with this? You know, I've learned this here. I've learned this from the media. I've learned this from uh, public uh, secular education. And when I come to church, it's a little bit different or it's a lot different, especially like last week's sermon what it must have been a lot different. What does that even mean? How do I make sense of it? And this is where, I, this is where we say, I th- it's, it's, it's honestly, it's not about liberal or conservative, the way the world sets it apart, but we think it's about liberation or progress, or conservatism, or blindly sticking to traditions. My friends, none of this can't be right. None of this can be right. Once again, we must be liberated to adhere to the truth and conserve it. We must be liberated to adhere to the truth and conserve it. And the only way to know the truth is to truly know Jesus Christ, know his word, and obey it. The only way to know the truth is to truly know Jesus Christ, know his word, and obey it. And we are being taught these things that have no ground, that have no base. There's no historicity to it, and there is no truth. And we'll see in our day-to-day things, if you read the news, these things will come up and they'll stir up emotions in you. And you have to wonder, why are these things stirring up emotions? Abortion activists will argue for women's right to choose. And then you might be like, wait, wait I, I, the church classically says it's not good, but I do believe in women's right. What do I make of it? Feminist leaders will quip and they will say things like, Everybody should be a feminist. Aren't you a feminist? Aren't you for equal rights? And then you'll see feminist leaders will also quip a woman that's liberated will have sex before marriage and a job after that. I want you to listen to what that says. A woman that's liberated will have sex before marriage and a job after that. One of the more famous uh, quotes uh, is this one. Uh, This one stayed with me. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. A woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. I said, you know, you, know, you, you want to get people on your side, then what do you do? You make it witty. You make it political. You, make, you, you say it's about freedom. You make it hip so that people understand today, in today's world, this is what we really want to do. And you'll say things like a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. You know, the ironic part about that very famous quote that many of you may know or many of you may have heard before that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle was originally from a philosopher who said man needs God like a fish needs a bicycle. That's where it's originally from. I find that very ironic that this original quote was, man needs God like fish needs a bicycle. And when we gather together, what happens? We realize the scriptures say otherwise. The scriptures say life is precious. A woman is made for a man. And a man is made for a woman. We are made for each other. But because of Adam's fall, like it says in Romans chapter 5, sin came in through the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And I, I brought this idea of headship out there. Because of this one man, all of death came and we see that even before and uh, Paul would argue even before the law was given and this is continuing on Romans chapter 5 like 
death reigned before the law was given. No one could have done anything right to say, I was following all of Moses' laws because even before the law was given, death reigned. So even before we can even make a conscious choice to do a right or wrong, we know that death still exists. Babies still die. And we see that as tragic. And we see that this is true, that death is spreading. And the Bible is teaching us because sin has taken over the world and it's in our lives. What do we do? And that is the crazy thing that we have to deal with in this world. And now we know in the Bible, what it is teaching us. We are now rotten to the core. We want to make the right decisions, but we can't. We want to do what's good, but we can't. And every time we want to do something that's good, it's always clouded and overtaken by these things that are selfish and indeed evil. We are rotten in this core of our life, and we are rebellious to the things that are good. Do you know why every single part of the Bible doesn't appeal to any one of us? It's because we are sinners. Why is it a surprise that when you see something in the Bible, you're like, that's tough. That's tough. That's really tough. I don't know if I could take this. You know why? Because we are not God. We didn't write the Bible. We didn't write it to make it comfortable for us. It's what God wrote, and that's good. And because of sin, we are rebellious to the things that are good. We are blind to the things that will give us life. We fall asleep when we need to be alert and say, oh my gosh, death is just around the corner. Wake up, because we're going to die, and death is eternal. We are now in a place that in our culture, we are teaching people that sex is meaningless. And sex has to be meaningless because what if sex has meaning? If sex has meaning, that means there's a right and wrong way to do it. And if you go further, that means if there's a right and wrong way to do something, there are duties that come with this right and wrong. In the Bible, it teaches us those duties are recognized and promised in the covenant made to one another in marriage. Why is it that when we rebel, though, rebel, we rage against this, we need to cover it up, lash out against God, or lash out against each other? I'm going to put up some uh, Bible verses so that if it's long, that you could just read it with me. Let's go to that second slide. In 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And if you look at this, there is definitely something that will offend you. There is no one that even escapes two verses in the Bible. Elizabeth Elliot would say, we must quit bending the word to suit our situation, but it is we who must be bent to the word. There's no one that passes the test. And once we realize that because no one could pass this test, it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. 
and we realize no one can pass this test. That's why Jesus was put on the cross. And guess what happens to sin? We start to hate sin. It's not as attractive as it once was. And then some might respond, but I can't help but to be a sinner. And I would say, yes, that's true. We can't help but to be a sinner. We are a people made up of, and this is what Martin Luther coined. He coined this term, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator means simultaneously justified and a sinner. And this is where we get the next slide. Could you put up the next slide? This verse, these verses don't end just there, but there is a verse 11, and it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this is what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that our best life is now. It doesn't mean that everything should fall into place now, that everything that you want will happen now. Because if it is your best life now, then you'd best be afraid of what's to come after this life, after now. But we are a people that live by faith. It starts on Hebrews chapter 11 starts out with Abel talking about faith, Noah, faith, Abraham, faith. Sarah, faith, and then the writer of Hebrews continues on, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We are a people that are seeking a better homeland, a country of our own. We are waiting for what God has prepared for his people. That is why it continues on. That is, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is all in context. In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, don't give up meeting together. Don't give up meeting together. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. What does that mean? It's about together worship. We are together to worship God. This is the church. We are together to worship God. In our day and age, it's all about self. Self-help, self-assertiveness, self-care. But I want to say it's not about the self. It's about the creator. It's about God. You know, the ironic thing about self is that if you continue to think about self, it's self-ish. And that, that it's really that. It's ish. You're really not the self. You're really not fully of who you can be. So you are self-ish. If you continue to think about the self and only the self, meaning you can never really be fully yourself if you're selfish. That's the ironic part. Because we learn that we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. John Piper write this about Christian hedonism, and he would switch that around. He say, he would say, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. It is about worship. It is about giving worth 
to someone that really is greater than us. And we worship as the gathered body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And I'll get into that really quickly soon. Uh, the past week, there was a dragon show that ended, and many, many people saw this dragon show for nine years. And I would see, I, I didn't watch it, but every time it would come on, I would see an Instagram story about it, and people would sing along to this tune, so excited. And then people were so angry that it ended so badly. And then there's all this rage about how it ended badly. And so I was talking with a brother who doesn't attend here, but I was talking with a brother who, who I think enjoyed the show, but also was raging at the bad ending. And I would just say, do you know the writer and creator of the show is a nihilist, meaning this guy believes in nothing. He actually hates Christians. He hates the idea that there is good and bad. He's a nihilist. He doesn't believe in anything. And so he was like, yeah, okay. So it's like, why are you surprised that someone who doesn't believe in anything can't write an ending? Uh, they're like, but uh, other people in the TV show must have helped write it. I was like, yes, because they're adopting that initial worldview of where the show started. You know what? There is a starting point and an ending point. And if you don't get that right, then don't be surprised if the show is bad. Don't be surprised. It's like, okay, I watched it. It was bad. Let's move on with life. I can guarantee you this is not the show for the ages, okay? There is a starting point. There is an ending point. This is what we mean when we say God is the true author of creation. This is what MLK would say, the universe bends toward justice. The interesting thing about fantasy is that more, the more it reflects reality, the better the story. Do you know what kind of fantasy stories last long? The more it reflects reality. And so what is reality? What is the church supposed to be? Christ's bride. And finally, we'll get into the title of the sermon. Well, let's go to slide four. Uh, the next slide, please. This is from Ephesians 5. What does it mean to be Christ's bride? Where is it in the Bible? And then all of a sudden, when Paul is talking about masters you need to serve, uh, I mean, slaves, you need to serve your masters, wife, you need to submit to your husbands, and all of a sudden, he takes this long, like, talk on about husbands and if you want to see a flip side of where the wife one is longer then turn to first peter three but there's a purpose for this and this is what it reads husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he who's that he is christ may sanctify her and we talked about sanctification just before in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, who she, the, the church, might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. 
And then it goes back to, again, what Jesus went back to. Remember Genesis, the first chapter? There were no chapters, right, back then, but where we saw in the first chapter. But also here in the scriptures, in Ephesians, it goes back to Genesis chapter 4. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he continues, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This relationship points to Christ and the church. In fact, every relationship that we have now should point to Christ and the church, meaning we all have roles to play and these roles point to and glorify Jesus Christ. It is not lax. It is specific. Because it is beautiful and it is precious. It is delicate and it, it is protected. And some of you might be reading this as like, all right, fine, fine, I, I get it. And then you'll say, but the church looks nothing like what you described. The church are full of all hypocrites. You're all hypocrites. And to that, if someone would say that to the church, this is how the church should respond. If someone says, you're all hypocrites, we always have room for one more. We always have room for one more. The church should be filled with people who aren't like holy and floating on air. The church is filled with simul, eustace, et peccator. We are justified, but we are simultaneously sinners. We have to admit that we are dirty. That's why we are humble in our response, but also in our submission to the word. We might not understand everything, but there is a humble submission that the Christian does when the Spirit of God changes their heart. That is why we need cleansing. And guess who is doing the cleansing? Guess who is doing the cleansing in the Bible? The helper. And who is the helper? The Holy Spirit. It's our God. He's doing the cleansing. It's our Lord. In our gathering, we see ourselves changing and becoming more like Jesus Christ. This is what we call being sanctified. And as we read and study scripture, we hear God's word, the voice of the shepherd. Don't you see? You know why we start getting together and we start loving each other? Because there is one voice that calls. It's like when the shepherd calls to the sheep. And all the sheep could be scattered all throughout the pastures. But when the shepherd calls, all the sheep come together. And when they all come together to the shepherd, guess what happens to all the sheep? They also come together. This is what is inevitable. And this is where we read today's passage. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's biblical teaching. There's fellowship. There's the breaking of bread. There's the prayers. To understand this, what happened before? What happened before? Pentecost came. The Spirit of God came down just as Jesus promised. And the Spirit of God filled all the apostles and the people that were praying. And the Spirit of God is still there. The Spirit of God never left. He, needs to, he doesn't need to go up and come down again. But this was promised, and the Spirit of God is with the church. And this is, uh, can we put up that next slide? This is what the, the Bible says. After 
Peter would preach the word of God, preach the gospel. This is what the people that heard this said. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Cut to the heart is, is a saying. Cut to the heart. This is, we see this in Septuagint when Isaac blessed the wrong person in the Bible. He was cut to the heart. When people are just like ruined, they were cut to the heart. And this knowledge, this gospel truth would ruin people. When you find out that you are a sinner, there's no way that you pass this test. No way. You are cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What do we do? There's no way I'm going to have a good life either now or later. There's no way. And this is what Peter said. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, when you hear this, I'm hoping that the last, uh, the previous parts of the message are all starting to come together. The shepherd's voice, the Holy Spirit, and all that stuff is coming together. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is the cry of the preacher. Save yourselves from this crooked generation, this evil world. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day, about 3,000 souls. So what does this passage say? There are two things that when you hear the gospel, the good news, the truth of Jesus Christ, what are we to do? Number one, we are to repent. Repent means we need to change our minds about Jesus Christ and our attitudes toward him. What was once hostile now submits. What was once angered, I can't believe this, this, I, I don't like it, becomes, this is good. This is good. We repent. What was once hostile now submits. Number two is baptism. What is baptism? Baptism is a clear and public token of repentance and faith in Jesus. This is where the person or the believer professes in public their faith and shares their repentance to the church and the believers receive that person. And this is where it will get a little weird because baptism back in the day was only for Gentile believers. Meaning if you were Jewish and, and then someone came to you and said, you got to be baptized, they would have thought and they would have seen this as a very humiliating thing. Jews don't, Jews don't get baptized. We're already like in the kingdom of God. We're already Abraham's children. You may have heard this before, but this is what Peter says. You need to get baptized. It would have been humiliating for them to be baptized, but what did they do? They repented and they were baptized because obedience is a key element to the new birth as a Christian. People repented and they got baptized. And then Peter promises two gifts that they would receive once they repent and once they are baptized. It's not out of merit and not because they did these things. It's not because they repented and baptized they would get these gifts. They're called gifts for a reason. But because their baptism and repentance were precursors to what God has ordained for them. 
Remember order? So all these things should come into play. There is an order. You might say, I don't want to repent. I don't want to get baptized. You said it's not about merit. Uh, and I, I liken that as someone with the same rationale as if someone who's been appointed by the king and says, you know what? I'm going to appoint you as an ambassador and uh, we're going to hold this ceremony to appoint you not only as an ambassador, as a knight. There is a ceremony that takes place. There is an outward show to the public. But instead, this person going up, I don't, I don't need that stuff. I just want to be ambassador. I don't need that stuff. Who does that offend? The king. It offends the king. That's why we obey what God ordains because we say he's the king. He wants it. I do it. And there's two gifts that come. Two gifts. Number one is the forgiveness of sins. Finally, what has held us captive is now being destroyed in my life. What is held captive, what has held me captive is finally being destroyed in my life. And number two is the gift of the Spirit, the power of regeneration, the indwelling of God, the unity of the body, the transformation of the mind and soul. Those are all the gift of the Spirit. That's a lot. With this, you belong to the church. When you do these things, you belong to the church. You are part of Christ's body. So is that it then? I repent, I'm baptized, I'm good. No, the regenerating work has just begun. John Stott would also liken this group of 3,000 new converts as 3,000 new kindergartners who would just come under the tutelage of Peter. But I would say it's even more younger and more immature than that. These are newborns, brand new babies. So no one goes to a baby that's just been born. Okay, baby, you're born now, so you do you. And then leaves the baby. You take care of the baby. You feed the baby. You're like, this baby must grow. And this is where we see finally the passage that was read today. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Biblical teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. I want to focus on one word here. It's how often would you meet if you were devoted to something? What kind of attitude would you have if you were devoted to something? There was a devotion to these things here in the early church. How often would you meet if you were devoted to something? You know, I, um, for the first time in my life, I played golf last Monday. Never played golf before. Uh, one of my pastoral fr pastor friends, he's like, you need to play golf because you look like you'd be good at it. I was like, that's not true. I've never played golf. He said, I'm going to get you some secondhand clubs, and we're going to go hit 18 holes. I said, whatever that means. So when I went, I went to Emerson, and when I went, I wore long pants and long sleeve shirt, and it was the hottest day of the year. Like, why did you dress like this? Like, I don't know what to dress when I play golf. What do I wear? And so there's like even a dress code. I don't know. Some of you like a noob, but um, there's a dress code. You got to wear like a collared shirt and shorts that aren't too like high and no baseball pants. And it's like, and I was wearing all these things. I was wearing a long sleeve shirt, baseball pants, whatever. And then, so people, people, he's like, the best way to learn golf is you just gotta play. And you just gotta just throw yourself in there. And I was like, this, I, 
I can't, I can't adhere to that kind of wisdom. I don't see this as true. I think I'm going to go into some pain. I didn't bring a bottle of water. I didn't bring anything. I just came by myself. So he gave me a, a, like a bag of clubs. And then he just, just tried to hit that with the eight iron. And I just swung. And so I lost two balls uh, in the 18 holes. I hit it every time there was a, 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 a sand ditch or whatever that's called. It always goes into the sand. I don't know why. It just always goes into the sand. <laughs> and I, I didn't have a good time. But they would say, you know, if you really want to play, you got to devote yourself to it. you got to go to the range. you got to learn about what the clubs are. you got to learn the swing. And so they were teaching me along the way. And, and I think it was just in one hole. You know how there's beginner's luck? There's this one hole. There was a par five hole. And every shot I hit just went straight and far enough. So I got a par. And they were like, you got a par the first time you played golf. That's not fair. I don't know what that meant. I was like, whatever. Every other one, I hit it like 10 times eventually to get in the hole. And so, you know, if you continue to devote yourself, you get better. You hit more pars or birdies or whatever it is instead of the quintuple bogeys that you've been hitting. And so you have to devote yourself. So if I'm devoted now, I'm not, by the way. If I were to ever get devoted to golf, what would I have to do? And you start seeing the picture. I want to know how to hold the club right. I want to know, the first time I played, why did I get blisters on my right hand? I want to know, it's like, why is my knee hurting? Why did I just wear running shoes when everybody has spikes on their shoes for some odd reason? I want to, and so you start thinking about these things. Why are they using this club for this hole? Why are they doing this? Why are they walking on this side path here? And then sometimes they go across the green because they know where the next hole is. And they knew all these things. I didn't know anything. And I was just walking. I was like, I am parched. I wish I had water. <laughs> and I was just dying. But if I really am devoted, what happens? My attitude changes. I start seeing things in a new light. And when I have new birth in Christ, my attitude changes. And I want to know about what is in this word. And I want to devote myself to what is in the word. And that's what the first church was like. They devoted themselves to these things. So that's why I wanted to ask, if you are devoted to Christ, and if you have become a new creation in Jesus Christ, what does that devotion look like? What does that attitude look like? There was a devotion to these things in the early church. And that's why point number one, there's three points that we see here, even though there are four things, I'm just going to put into three. The church must be a learning church. You have to learn. You have to learn. The church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We know that this is the study of the scriptures. You know, devotion isn't just about mystical experiences like, I experienced God, I'm good. They weren't getting high off of religion. This anti-intellectualism is completely against and contrasts the fullness of the spirit. They are incompatible. The spirit is a spirit of truth. And when you receive the spirit, you become hungry for the truth. You sit at the feet of the teacher and you learn. This is why when, when Mary wasn't helping Martha, the crazy thing really about that story isn't about Martha was just busy doing things and Mary was just staying there by Jesus' feet. That's why Mary was cool. The crazy thing about that part was Mary knew that the best thing I can do is to sit at Jesus' feet. What does that mean when you sit at someone's feet, when you sit at the feet of a teacher, when you submit yourself? It means you are learning. You love it. 
You devote yourself to the learning of scripture. That's why Jesus would go, Mary has chosen the better thing. Because she's learning. The spirit of God leads the church to submit to the word of God. Number two, the church must be a loving church. They devoted themselves to the koinonia, which is translated the fellowship. And so even yesterday, a brother was like, I just want to hang. Let's hang. Let's have fellowship. Is that what that means? And I would say yes and more. Yes, it means let's hang and more. Koinonia means a deep sharing of life. Koinonikos, which is from koinonia, means generous. The Bible will go on to say that every believer, they were all together and had everything in common. Everything in common was koina. This was a voluntary, joyful sharing of giving of each other and their possessions. They gave to one another as they saw a need. You know how you know someone's need? You spend time with them. You smell them. They have a B.O. It's like, you need this deodorant. It's called savage. And you need it, right? And so you spend time with them. You know they gave to one another as they needed. So the poor person didn't feel shame, and the rich person was not prideful. To love God is to also love his bride, to love the church. And from that love, it goes on outward to all the image bearers. This is why I believe that learning and loving go hand in hand. Learning and loving go hand in hand. Not only is it written like that in the text, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the koinonia, Comma. But there's other texts, and our understanding must lead us there. You must learn to love. You must learn to love. There is a reason why it says truth in love, which we went over. Truth in love. We read 2 Timothy chapter 3, but understand this. In that last days, there will come times of difficulty for people to be lovers of self, lovers of money. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And Paul goes, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. And here is how he ends. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. That is why learning and loving, they need to go hand in hand. You must devote yourselves to the study of scriptures, and you must devote yourselves to the koinonia, to the fellowship. Lastly, number three, the church must be a worshiping church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Not just in fellowship, but also in worship. You know, we cannot do communion by ourselves. You can't do communion by yourself. You can't just sit there on your desk and be like, this is the bread, and you, this is not. It's a corporate community of worship. Some of you laugh. I bet some people thought, it's like, why can't I do it by myself? This is, this is, you know, and do that. But 
None of this stuff is done by ourselves. What about prayer? Even what about prayer? How does Jesus teach his disciples how to pray? What's the first line? Isn't the first line, our Father? Our Father. When you say that, you say that by yourself? Or do you say that with people? When they devote themselves to the prayers, they were together and they prayed these things together as the Lord Jesus taught them. Our Father. And then it will go on, forgive us. Lead us. Give us. They were doing this daily and with joy and grateful hearts. And it continues on in the, in the passage of Acts. And day by day, attending the temple together every day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in the homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. The church is an attractive church when it is the true church or the church of truth. The church is to reflect reality. Do you hear that? The church is to reflect reality. Reality is here where the word of God is preached and lived out. And when we say we are now the church scattered, what we are doing is we are bringing reality out from this gathering. We are charged to bring the reality out there, not to succumb to the pressures of the world, not to conform to the cultural norms of today, but to be countercultural, light-bearing, truth-speaking, love-shaping, transformed ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why this kind of church is the evangelistic church, the gospel-centered church, the sanctified bride of Christ. And the sanctified bride of Christ is the one who cries, Lord Jesus, we eagerly await your second coming where you will restore all things, holding on to your word where you said yourself, this is what Jesus promises us in Revelation, surely I am coming soon. And this is how the church responds. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is our cry as the church, as we are being shaped and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. This is why the church is beautiful. Because Jesus. Because Jesus. That's it. And so we continue to learn. We continue to have fellowship. And we continue to worship where this place needs to reflect reality. This is the bride of Christ. Let's pray.